Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids of all ages. They make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. Inspire creative confidence this year with KiwiCo. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more, visit kiwico.com magazine. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 25th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, I talk with reporter Jason Fouts about air pollution from marijuana farms and how federal restrictions make it difficult to study the environmental impact of growing cannabis. Megan Cantwell and Dana Small discuss how modern foods processed and packed with sugars and fats may be disrupting the communication between the gut and the brain. And books editor Valerie Thompson interviews author Erica Malam about her book, Creatures of Cain, The Hunt for Human Nature in Cold War America, which traces the rise and fall of the idea that our capacity for violence and killing is what makes us human. Is marijuana growing contributing to air pollution? One of the problems with studying marijuana is that it's not legal at the federal level in the United States. So there are states where it's legal to consume it and where it's legal to grow it and sell it, but they are not allowed to use federal funds to study it. I have freelance reporter Jason Plouts here. He looked at this issue in Denver, Colorado, where marijuana is legal and large operations where people are growing cannabis in warehouses have sprung up along a highway. Researchers wanted to know if some of the chemicals that are emitted by these plants are damaging to the environment, and they had to kind of go into their garage and, and try it there. Can you talk about what the experimental setup was like? The garage setup, I'd say, was pretty pretty bare bones. It's just a shelving unit. There are lawnmowers and bikes all around. It's certainly not the conditions that I think you would want if you're growing plants for any sort of scientific study. And how did the plants turn out that, that grew in these garage conditions? <laughs> they were described to me as, uh, as pretty pathetic. <laughs> Definitely not something that was uh, sellable, not something that was really up to par with what the industry is growing. You know, from what I understand, some of the plants that are commercially grown, they can be up to six feet tall. The leaves are just giant. 
But the problem is that they can't use the normal facilities. The researchers can't use the normal facilities that they would if they were growing something a little bit less controversial, like hops or tobacco. Exactly. Exactly. Even in a state like Colorado, uh, where recreational marijuana is legal, you can't bring it into a federally funded facility. There's concern that they could lose their funding. And they were trying to figure out whether these volatile organic compounds called terpenes were accumulating in high enough levels that they don't just affect the indoor air quality, but also the outdoor air quality. What would happen if a lot of terpenes, a lot of volatile organic compounds were escaping from these operations where they're growing cannabis on the large scale in Denver? Denver is kind of an interesting case. Denver is dealing with an ozone problem. It's been in uh, federal non-attainment, which means it's violating federal health standards for a number of years now. Ozone is formed when volatile organic compounds like these terpenes mix with nitrogen oxide. That's pollution that can come from tailpipes of cars, from industrial sources. Denver is what's considered VOC limited, which means that it has a lot of sources of nitrogen oxide not so many sources of volatile organic compounds, which means that the more VOCs you're adding to the environment, the more opportunity there is to make ozone. So when you're talking about putting 600 or so growing facilities in Denver, you're adding a lot of these VOCs, which can then help form ozone. The marijuana plants, are they particularly rich in this when they grow? Are they releasing a lot more than any other kind of plant? The industry is actually trying to maximize production of terpenes. The smell that comes off of cannabis, which you know a lot of people call the, the dank smell, that's terpenes. And there have been a lot of complaints about odor coming off of marijuana growing facilities, especially some of the outdoor facilities in states like California. Well, that's the same thing. What they're complaining about are terpene emissions. Now, it doesn't matter so much in rural environments where there's not a lot of nitrogen oxide production, but in a city like Denver, that could be a big problem depending on what the volume is. Right. What about the people that are in these warehouses? Are they in danger from being exposed to these terpenes? That's one of the next big topics that they want to look at is, you know, what does it mean to be breathing in these emissions all day? What does it mean to be working with them? And the implications really aren't known, again, just because research has been so hard to do on this industry. You know, it's funny, I, I talked to... Um, a researcher from the Desert Research Institute who did some field studies looking at this as well. And he and his team complained that they would come back to the lab and everything would just reek of cannabis. You know, they said their clothes, even the papers that they were using to write down their notes would just smell days later. His thinking is, this has got to mean something. And, and he wants to do some study on that. Well, what was the outcome of this pilot study carried out in a garage looking at what's coming off of these pathetic plants that you do. <laughs> so what they were looking to do was do what are called enclosure studies. So they were taking the plants that they were growing, putting them under essentially a, just a bag and sucking out the emissions there. And this was the first study to do enclosure studies on cannabis plants. And they were really trying to quantify what are the different terpenes, what is the volume of these different species of terpenes. Yeah. And were they able to get any kind of data that would be helpful for modeling this? Oh, definitely. But I think everybody acknowledges the best way to do this study is to go into commercial facilities, really look at an environment that's designed to create terpenes. And is that, is that the next step? That's the next step. So the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment is doing a field study, which should be kicking off next month in February, 
where they're going to go into four different growing facilities, two very large ones, two more boutique ones. And they're going to be setting up canisters throughout these facilities at different points in the growing process to measure the VOC emissions that uh, come off the plants. They're also going to have a lot more access to the inventory that's in these facilities. The facilities are going to be sharing what strains they're growing, how many plants of each strain they're growing. So this is going to give a much better accounting of in a commercial facility that's designed to grow plants to their maximum terpene production, what are the VOCs coming off? Is there some kind of policy implication to this ongoing study? At the moment, there's not a policy implication. Agriculture is exempt from federal air quality regulations. The EPA doesn't recognize cannabis as an industry, so there are going to be no federal rules coming down limiting emissions. What the state is really hoping to do is, number one, quantify the emissions, get a better understanding of it. Number two, turn around to the industry and say, look, this is your potential impact on air quality. Here are some voluntary steps that you can take. Now, the good news is there's actually a pretty easy set of steps that the industry could take. There are carbon filtration systems that they can put on exhaust systems, and these are going to filter out somewhere close to 98 or 99% of the VOCs before they reach the air. Some facilities are already using them for odor control. The hope is that by helping to quantify this and, and show the industry its potential impact, they can encourage more of these filters and really show the industry what's the best way to use them. Very interesting. Okay, what did I miss? I feel like we covered a lot of the the ground that was in your, in your story. Is there anything you feel like we left out? There are a lot of federal restrictions here in the U.S. because of the federal government's stance on marijuana. Where a lot of people are now looking is north of the border. Canada legalized recreational marijuana nationally, and the hope is that can be an opportunity where you have a government that is more supportive of marijuana and, and certainly of cannabis research. Uh, so the hope is that there can be some partnerships with Canadian universities or the Canadian government to help do some of this research. All right. Thank you so much, Jason. Yeah. Happy to do it. Okay. Jason Plouts is a freelance writer based in Denver. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for Megan Cantwell's interview with Dana Small on how the gut-brain connection may be disrupted by modern foods. This week's episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about STEAM fun. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month, the kid in your life, be it your neighbor, your nephew, your niece, your own kid, will receive a fun, engaging new project that will develop their creativity and confidence. Their projects are designed to spark that creativity, get them tinkering and learning, and this is for kids of all ages. KiwiCo has seven types of crates to choose from. We've got the tadpole crates for infants, koala crate to engage naturally curious preschoolers like mine, all the way up to the eureka crate for anyone over 14, which includes me, I guess, anybody over 14. Every crate includes the supplies needed for that month's project, detailed, easy to follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn more about that crate's theme. Everything is created by KiwiCo's team of in-house product designers, and rigorously tested by kids, which means, yes, it's fun. Yes, they learn something. And yes, they cannot break it very easily. KiwiCo's mission is to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners a chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more, visit kiwico.com magazine.
the moment you see something or think about something, you're going to have changes in your gut that are going to signal to your brain. So there's, there's a lot of bi-directional communication going on. Within the past few decades, the diet of people around the world has changed with the introduction of processed foods. I'm Megan Cantwell, and I'm here with Dana Small to talk about how these processed foods may be complicating the communication between the brain and the gut. Hey, Dana. Hey. When was this link between the gut and the brain discovered? I can think back to a paper by Adolfs in 1947, and he made this famous conclusion that rats eat for calories. But what it meant was that there had to be some sort of signal in the gut that was transferring the information about the calories to the brain. What part of the brain is the gut communicating to, and what does the brain interpret this signal as? So there's a lot of different areas that are being communicated to. The pathway that is best known that was recently described by Han et al. in Cell Paper goes through the vagus nerve and then into the hindbrain. So from the hindbrain, it then goes to the midbrain where all the dopamine cells are. And those cells then project to the striatum. When you have activation in the gut, like right away, you get regulation of a central dopamine circuit. You wrote about how processed foods are complicating how the brain's interpreting this signaling. Could you talk specifically about how sugar from processed foods is making it more complicated? Really, our our food environment has changed dramatically in the last 50 years. And so it's sort of out of step with many of these old circuits. So modern foods, there's lots of carbohydrate and lots of sugar in them, but there's also artificial sweeteners. Through a series of studies, we found that the beverages that we were using, they had different metabolic effects depending on the ratio of sweetness to calories. So those beverages that were sort of mismatched where they were too sweet or not sweet enough for the amount of calories that were there, their metabolic response was blunted. So that means they were less rewarding. And in fact, people didn't learn to like those flavors associated with that particular combination. So this is an unanticipated effect that in fact, it kind of backfires because it it changes, it shifts the metabolic response. When the metabolic response goes down, it means the glucose is not being used. So that means that it's not enough for the glucose to be in the gut or in the blood it actually has to be used by the cells as a fuel in order to be rewarding. How do processed foods with fats and carbohydrates complicate this signaling? You have a lot of the processed foods that are out there, the ones at least that we crave, like donuts and pizza. Those have carbohydrate in the form of starches, which are broken down into glucose once they get to the gut. And they also are really high in fat. If you look at the food environment pre, let's say, 1800, there's very, very few foods that have both fat and carbohydrate in them, at least to any great extent. And so the brain's never really seen these signals together at the same time. One of the discoveries in the last few years is that there are these separate pathways for fat and for carbohydrate. One of the questions that we had asked is whether or not they could interact. And indeed, they do. So Both of those pathways are going to dopamine circuits. So what is the brain's response to these processed foods? If you look at brain imaging studies with people viewing these pictures of either foods that are high in fat, high in carbohydrate, or high in fat and carbohydrate, the responses in these central dopamine circuits are stronger for the foods that have the fat and the carbohydrate 
But the interesting thing is those foods have the same amount of calories as the other foods that are just fat or just carbohydrates. So they're all equally caloric. They're also all equally liked and they're equally familiar. Nevertheless, their brain reward circuits, the striatum in particular, will respond stronger to the foods with the fat and the carbohydrate. So this is then evidence that these two signals can interact to potentiate reward. So the striatum is, per- is preferring things with fats and carbohydrates together. I don't know if it's preferring them, but the, the response is certainly stronger to those. Mm, okay. Yeah. And those, those responses are thought to be learning signals. And so a strong response can translate not necessarily into greater liking, uh, but it can translate into greater learning. Mm, So the learning is happening unconsciously? Exactly. A lot of this learning is occurring in circuits that existed way before there was cortex and consciousness. And so this very simple learning circuit works perfectly well without any conscious thought, without any perception of liking. So for example, you can condition brain responses to different foods. And the more metabolic response you have, the greater the brain response to that food or that flavor. What is interesting is that those areas, which include the striatum, but also the hypothalamus, so like sort of the master regulator of feeding, those responses, while they're very, very closely related to those metabolic signals, They are unrelated to how much people say they like the thing. Are there other studies that demonstrate how this signaling works? There's now two studies, including one by my lab, but also another one by Alan Dagger's group at McGill University, where they use the Becker-DeGroote auction task. So people are shown pictures of foods. They're given a certain amount of money. They're hungry. And they have to bid against the computer in order to earn the possibility of eating one of those foods immediately after they're in a scanner. What he found and what our group found is that the amount that people are willing to bid depends on the actual energy density of the food, but not on the estimated energy density of the food. So we're now we're talking about nutritive signals. One is veridical. One is actually the nutritive signal related to the energy density of the thing. And then the other one is how much you think. And what determines reinforcing or how much you're willing to pay is the actual energy density, not the estimated energy density. And in fact, people are really bad at estimating the energy density. And it's also not related to liking. So this does mean then that these signals are influencing behavior, at least how much you're willing to pay even though they're not being translated into conscious knowledge of how much calories are there. And even though you don't like it any more than some other food, you're still going to be biased towards it if it has more energy dense. So that means that it's not enough for the glucose to be in the gut or in the blood. It actually has to be used by the cells as a fuel in order to be rewarding. So if the nutritional content of processed food isn't being communicated properly, is there any way to correct or unlearn these reinforcements? That's an area that needs a lot of further research. My suspicion is that learning happens and learning keeps happening. You could uh, learn to dislike something. I mean, the classic example is conditioned taste aversion learning. You can take something you really like And then one time you get sick on it, and then you will never touch it again. (laughs) Flavor learning is very flexible. You know, you always hear about the modern food environment, which, you know, is filled with hyper palatable, energy dense, 
inexpensive foods. Blame is put on pleasure. But actually, a lot of these foods are not hyperpalatable. So it's not that they're incredibly delicious the first time you have them. What they are is incredibly reinforcing and their nutritive bang is, is higher, I would say, than their, than how pleasurable they are. So pleasure, it could be a force for good because it shunts the decision away from these unconscious circuits towards more conscious perceptions and sort of more goal-directed behaviors, which is more under your control. All right. Thank you so much. Sure. Dana Small is a professor of psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine and director of the Modern Diet and Physiology Research Center. You can find a link to her insight at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Up next, we have books editor Valerie Thompson and author Erica Malam discussing the rise and fall of the killer ape hypothesis of humanity. Are people people because of our capacity for violence? Welcome to the first book segment of 2019. In December, we said goodbye to our longtime producer, Jen Golbeck. So while we search for her replacement, you're stuck with me, Valerie Thompson, the book review editor here at Science, as your host. Today, our guest is historian Erica Milam, and we'll be discussing her new book, Creatures of Cain, The Hunt for Human Nature in Cold War America. Erica, we're so happy to have you here. I am so delighted to be here. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. Um, can you begin with like a brief summary of what the book is about? It's a book that is fundamentally about what it means to be human from the 1950s through to the 1980s. And it's about two interwoven stories. One is the rise and fall of what I call the killer ape theory. And the other is about how scientific publication works for general readers. Let's get a little bit more into this killer ape hypothesis. Sure. There were three men who were primarily associated with the killer ape theory for popular readers. One of them was Robert Ardrey, who actually trained as a theater writer. And he ends up becoming interested in human nature in the 1950s as a result of being posted on assignment by Reporter Magazine to Africa. And it's in Africa that he becomes fascinated by the idea that what makes humans human is the moment when human ancestors picked up a bone or a piece of rock and realized that it could be used as a weapon to kill. And that it is, in fact, this moment of of aggression, of potentially murderous intent that provided the, the motive energy that made humans what they were then in the 1950s and 1960s as he was writing. And this idea that what is special about human beings originated in violence was what people called the killer ape theory of humanity. It was also associated with Conrad Lorenz, who was trained in the study of animal behavior and with Desmond Morris, trained under Nicholas Tinberg in Oxford for his PhD, and then he gets a job at the London Zoo. So Ardrey is different because he's actually not trained as a scientist, unlike Morris and Lorenz. But it's in fact his books that become so popular that this idea begins to gain currency among general readers. What was it that was so compelling to 
general audiences. He's a very dramatic writer. For Ardrey, he believed that, in fact, his training in the humanities provided him with insight into what it meant to be human. So that, in fact, he was perhaps even better suited than a scientist who had not been infused with humanist vigor to be able to understand the secrets of what it meant to be human. And certainly that comes through in his writing. And so these books were invigorating. They were controversial. Certainly not everyone who read them thought, oh, Ardrey, he's so great. Many people thought that they found his vision of what it meant to be human frustrating and dehumanizing. That by by investing in what it meant to be human in violence, then what happens to all of those qualities about human beings that we actually value to our love, our compassion, our capacity to cooperate? And there was a belief at the time that, in fact, other animals did not kill other adults of their same species. That, in fact, that was a uniquely human trait. Right. And you get into that a little bit in the book as well, is kind of like how the hypothesis fell out of favor um, was with these new primate studies that we were starting to see. Primates come in because they are ecologically quite similar to where paleoanthropologists think humans might have lived early in our history. And so in the open savanna, the species that first gets used as the primary primate example are baboons. And then slowly over the 1960s, thanks to the work of Jane Goodall and then eventually Diane Fossey and Berute Galdikas, there's an increasing tendency to look at the great apes, to look at chimpanzees and then gorillas and orangutans, respectively. And chimpanzees provide a really different kind of model than baboons. So whereas baboons appear to be fierce, hierarchical, and with profound sexual dimorphism between the males and the females, chimpanzees, people thought in the 1960s as a result of Goodall's early work, that they were primarily peaceful. They were rather cooperative in comparison to the baboons. And then also that they were mostly forest dwelling. And so it was this ecological difference that got mapped onto an evolutionary transition in human history, that potentially we had been like chimpanzees earlier, but then in the transition to the savanna, became more like the baboons, became more aggressive and territorial. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, Sure. Let's talk about, I know that you've done a great deal of scholarship in this area already. I was wondering if there's anything that was really surprising to you when you were doing the research for this book in particular. What I found really shocking was that when the new Hollywood films started to make an appearance in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And there's a whole slew of them by um, film directors like Sam Peckinpah and Stanley Kubrick. Many of them were derided as being phenomenally violent. And in defending their movies against criticisms like these, both Kubrick and Peckinpah invoke Ardry and this vision of human nature as evidence that all they are doing is showing humanity as it really ought to be depicted. And that previous Hollywood films had softened what it truly meant to be human because of the Hayes Code of moral conduct. And so finally, they were able to make real movies about real men. That's fascinating. I feel like the idea that they were using this 
kind of scientific evidence to justify violence in the movies. That's so interesting. Yes. <laughs> what was the impetus behind this book? What compelled you to write it? I got interested in this project as a result of beginning to explore the history of a grade school scientific curriculum project called Man, a Course of Study. And Man, a Course of Study was directed by Jerome Brunner, who is a cognitive psychologist out of Harvard University. And he assembled a team of experts in order to be able to put together this curriculum. And they came together with grade school teachers in order to build a program around three central questions. What is human about human beings? How did they get that way? And how can they be made more so? It is a progressive, anti-racist, self-consciously optimistic vision of what it means to be human. And the idea is to train fifth graders in anthropological study and to get them to think about what it means to be human, first through thinking about what's different between humans and other animals, and then by studying another culture and beginning to recognize the ways in which our culture and their culture are similar. It's this great curriculum project. I was totally fascinated by it. And I started looking into the history and was horrified to discover that in the 1970s, it gets picked up by congressional representative John Conlon, who is a Republican from the state of Arizona. And he is so upset by this program that he calls it repugnant and vulgar. And he insists that grade school children are impressionable and, quote, should be shown the beauty and wonders of life, not just its seemiest and most uncivilized aspects. And I thought, wow, how is this program so many different things to different people. What has changed between the 1960s and the 1970s that makes it possible for Brunner and the scientists who worked on it to be so optimistic and for Conlon to be so horrified? And I became interested in the changing politics of human nature and what was going on in American society that rendered this same set of information so politically different. This is kind of a relatively recent period of history, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what messages or lessons that contemporary scientists, particularly our readers I'm thinking of, will take away from the book. I think there's probably two of them. One of them is that the power of what I call colloquial science, scientific publications that are designed not just to reach people who are experts in that area, but also scientists in other areas and general readers not necessarily trained in the sciences, that the power of colloquial science to inspire the next generation of students is phenomenal. And I did a whole variety of oral history interviews with scientists over the course of this project. And one of the things that I found amazing was that they invoke these popular science books, these colloquial books, as the inspiration for getting interested in the big questions about what it means to be human or why to be a scientist in the first place. And so I really think that we need to think of colloquial science also as a part of science today and the scientific conversation today because it plays a super important role. The second is more scientifically oriented, I suppose, which is that stories about human nature are phenomenally malleable politically. 
And the kinds of moral lessons that people have drawn from humanity's deep history have changed over time. And although biological theories of human nature can and have been used to debase some members of society as less valuable than others, they have also been used to promote egalitarian conceptions of humanity as a whole. And I think it's important to keep track of these different kinds of messages and to think about what it is that scientists and historians of science want to say in their work for general readers. Thank you so much for joining us today, Erica. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Valerie. I very much enjoyed the conversation. That was Valerie Thompson and Erica Malam discussing the book Creatures of Cain, The Hunt for Human Nature in Cold War America. You can find more author interviews and book reviews on our books blog, Books at All. Valiant Valerie will be back at the end of next month with another book for your stack. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. And we are looking for another book reviewer to fill in some time. So if you have science and radio experience, get in touch. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast, or you can listen on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. To place an ad on the science podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.